Okay, start again. <laughs> I was welcoming people to um, this fifth session of the People's COVID Inquiry, uh, which uh, tonight focuses on the impact of COVID-19 on frontline staff and key workers. Uh, my name's Sue Richards, and I'm a member of the Executive Committee of Keep Our NHS Public, uh, which is the campaigning organisation which has uh, set up this um, People's COVID Inquiry. Um, we believe very strongly there ought to be a full judicial public inquiry, but each time Boris Johnson's asked about it, it seems to recede further and further into the distance. Um, so here we are doing this um, as an important uh, interim step. Um, I've got a great long quote from uh, Boris Johnson here um, that I meant to read out, but actually I can't really quite bear to. Uh, so I'll summarise it for you in uh, probably 10% of the words he uses, which is, it was very difficult, we did our best. Um, well, doing your best may not be quite enough um, because, you know, here we are at 130,000 deaths in the UK from COVID. Is it really the case that we couldn't have done any better than that? Uh, and we need to examine and think about what we have done uh, and learn from it so that we don't make the same mistakes twice. And that's what this in inquiry is about. Um, I want to express our gratitude to all those who've been on the panel so far uh, and our witnesses. We've had two sorts of witnesses, really, expert witnesses who've given us the benefit of their professional knowledge um, for the, the inquiry and citizen witnesses who are experts in their own life and how COVID has impacted on them. And that's been uh, equally significant. So thank you to uh, both sets of, of witnesses and can I just say to those watching that if you want to ask a question or make a comment send it to us on the website and we'll take note of it in uh, bringing all this together so do feel that you're part of this too. Um, just a few announcements to make um, very quick before we actually get on with it. Uh, this is being live streamed concurrently on the main page of uh, Keep Our NHS Public's Facebook. Uh, it's on YouTube and it's also on Twitter. If you want to uh, see captions, uh, subtitles, press the icon with a double C on it uh, at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we'll be sending you messages on the chat uh, throughout the evening um, about uh, various different things, but the most important thing that I want to mention is there's a link to our crowdfunder, which is now 80% of its way to meeting its target. But we need 100% in order to uh, send the messages of the inquiry out to the wider public and to influence public opinion. So that's really important. You've probably already uh, donated, but if you can do it again, that would be much appreciated. Um, we're uh, going to... Um, record this this session of course and it will be on the website shortly afterwards and the final uh, thing is to say that there will be a five minute break halfway through the session for obvious reasons so let me now without further ado thank the panel and hand over so thanks very very much to Michael Mansfield QC this internationally renowned um, lawyer 
specializing in human rights, is working simultaneously with us in the Grenfell Inquiry, his work for the Stephen Lawrence family and for the Hillsborough families, and so many other wonderful causes. Um, and it's just wonderful to have him chairing the panel. And equally good is to have our panel members, Professor Nina Modi, um, who is Professor of um, Neonatal Medicine at Imperial College London, and also the President of the UK Medical Women's Federation. Um, Dr. Uh, Tallulah Oli, um, who is an urban epidemiologist and public health physician um, at the Medical Research Council's Epidemiological Unit at uh, Cambridge University, and uh, Dr. Jackie Davis, NHS consultant, radiologist, author, and uh, a BMA member. Uh, all of our panel's members speak in a personal capacity. Um, and finally, let me thank uh, Lorna Hackett of Hackett and Dabs, barrister who is counsel to the inquiry. And it's now my honour and my privilege to hand over to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Well, may I thank you very much for your kind words and perhaps add to them. Uh, it may uh, have been noticed by a number of you that a couple of days ago, the Archbishop of Canterbury, along with other religious leaders, attended the commemorative wall uh, for the bereaved and survivors as well of COVID-19 on the south bank of the Thames. He took the opportunity to add his strong voice to the many others who are demanding, including the bereaved, a full judicial inquiry, which, as Sue has just said, we support. However, there's a problem. There's a problem for government, which is why we say the likelihood of these voices achieving their objective is actually quite small. It was announced last July by Boris, since when he's done nothing. If you're going to have a judicial inquiry which takes time and resources and money to set up, you've got to have done it by now. But he's done nothing at all. And he's not indicating any timeline within which it might be set up. And that is the importance of this inquiry because, to put it bluntly, we're getting on with it and replicating as far as we're able the conditions that might apply. So we call ourselves a quasi-judicial inquiry because I don't have the powers that a judge might have. However, there are some other things that are important to distinguish this inquiry and the importance of this inquiry from a judicial inquiry, which I don't think any of those who are asking for one have really thought about. I have never mentioned it before, but it occurs now because, or equally in the last week or so, you will have all heard a lot about sleaze. You will have heard a lot about the way in which contracts have been handed out worth millions of pounds to the private sector. Where's the money gone? And of course, there are various names connected with all of this sleaze, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Matt Hancock, and so on. Now that, when it comes to a public inquiry, you might be interested to note, it already isn't getting the full glare of a public inquiry. But in fact, 
a government decides the terms of reference. A judicial inquiry is in fact a government inquiry. They appoint the panel. They also determine the terms of reference. So they could, for example, decide to say to any future judicial inquiry, if it ever gets off the ground, you're not going to be able to look at the activities of ministers and the way in which contracts were handed out or distributed, even though they were very central to this pandemic. So you bear that in mind. The other major distinction is we're a people's inquiry and we do allow, unlike a judicial inquiry, which is handled differently, we, we actually encourage members of the public to ask questions of the kind that they want answers to. So there are some very significant and important differences to the exercise we're conducting. And I just wanted to accentuate the significance of the work that everybody's doing, uh, including obviously the campaign that has set up this inquiry. So having said that, I was gonna say without much more ado, but I probably already had too much ado, but may I hand to uh, counsel for the inquiry, Lorna Hackett, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Um, and I'd like to call the first witness this evening, um, Unjum Mirza. Hi. Hello, good evening. Um, thank you for your uh, witness statement. Um, I understand that you provided a witness statement for the purpose of this evening's proceedings dated the 17th of April 2021, uh, and that you have confirmed above your signature that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you. Um, can I just start with um, your occupation? Because I, as I understand it, you have a dual role. Well, I'm uh, a train driver uh, at Brixton Depot on the Victoria Line. Um, it's not a dual role per se, not in terms of employment, uh, but I'm also a trade union representative. I'm um, a BAME uh, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic representative for ASLEF on the Victoria Line. Right. Um, and so in your role at London Underground and as a trade unionist, what was the immediate response um, in your experience to the pandemic? Our immediate response uh, was, mine in particular, but ours generally, was uh, just how slow uh, things were progressing towards what for, for us, who've been through a number of um, crises, be it the bombings in 2005, and indeed uh, as a kind of um, a lesser um, uh, impact of, you know, uh, potential pandemic, which we were kind of putting contingencies in place for, was the swine flu. So we knew, um, we knew that there was extremely slow progress uh, in, in in the run-up to the first, um, the first lockdown. Um, and we knew the initial measures put in place by London Underground were completely incoherent and uh, not fit for purpose. So... So what, what, were the, what were the initial measures that were put in place by London Underground? Well, one of the first things they did, uh, the now, um, he's now departed, we now have a new Transport Commissioner, but the Transport Commissioner at the time, Mike Brown, who's also a former uh, Managing Director for London Underground, uh, one of the first things they did was uh, to close 40 stations. Um, and, we, I mean, we did all look at each other in terms of staff as trade unionists and thinking, what are you doing? Uh, this is 
a virus, uh, you are now closing stations and you're now effectively encouraging congestion uh, in, in, in fewer places when, of course, those 40 stations remaining open helps us to spread the uh, passenger traffic that we actually have. So it's completely nonsensical. Um, and it was really an attempt to show that London Underground were doing something, when in fact, by doing something, they were making the situation worse. And the contingency which they put in place, i.e. the 40 stations, was a contingency they put in place for one of our strikes. And it was just totally unfit for purpose. How long were the 40 stations closed for? I think they were closed uh, way into May, possibly June, actually. So for some some time, actually. Mm -hmm. So uh, in your in your witness statement, you talk really eloquently about what the phrase key worker means and that the pandemic has effectively created a sort of shift in the understanding of, of key roles in society, as well as the way that that hasn't really been followed through by the government in respect of policy. Can, can you expand on the way in which government policy has effectively failed key workers, in your view? It failed key workers. Um, most kind of uh, in everybody's face really was how they um, failed completely. Our NHS staff, our nurses, our doctors, uh, those in the front line, literal front line in saving people's lives. Um, but for, I remember getting um, every morning, going to the bus stop um, at uh, 4.30 to, um, to, to get down to my uh, depot to work. And of course, I, I meet other key workers there. You meet uh, refuse workers from the local council. You meet cleaners um, getting ready for work. And these are all the people who are absolutely key to keeping society running at any time but absolutely now, in the middle of a pandemic, simply everything would have fallen apart without these uh, without these key workers and the interconnectedness of, of our of our work. We cannot operate without each other. You can say train drivers are great, it's a great job, and etc. But it means absolutely nothing unless we got the cleaners to help us out cleaning the platforms, cleaning stations, cleaning the trains, cleaning our cabs. And it was that interconnectedness between us uh, that was absolutely essential to to really getting through this uh, this pandemic. This is something that was totally missed uh, by by government, and indeed, it's got to be said uh, largely by our management and by TfL as well, in terms of my main employer. So, yeah, mentioning TfL, um, how did TfL Transport for London? Um, which, as I understand, incorporates London Underground and London buses. How did they implement safety measures and, and what was the effect of them? On the underground, to tell you the truth, we kind of took charge. And I'll say we, I, as a workforce and as the trade uh, trade unions, we had to take charge. And it, it was kind of easier for us in the sense that we a unitary uh, kind of body uh, structure and we're still within the uh, public sphere. Um, there have been attempts to, indeed, there have been uh, privatisations within uh, within London Underground, and largely over the years we've won uh, we've won that back, particularly in our engineering sector, in, in, on the track sector, in the uh, fleet, and etc. On the buses, it's very different. So you've got ten different companies uh, running different routes, all competing with each other all uh, based on um, on, on uh, avoiding fines for the mileage they cover and etc. Um, 
the safety measures, I remember again, because we have close contacts with our uh, bus, uh, fellow bus workers and indeed with members from Unite. And uh, they were just, I mean, the amount of bus drivers who told me they were just totally abandoned. Um, the lack of, or actually the absence of any safety protocol measures put in place to protect them uh, was quite astonishing. And it's unsurprising and tragic that the um, the horrific death toll on the buses out of 25,000 bus uh, drivers, uh, I think the report from UCL showed um, there was uh, something like a th three times the average um, national death rate on the buses. Um, and it was it was horrific. Um, it's, it's, it's just it was non-existent, the safety protocols and measures on the on the buses. So in terms of the bus, were bus drivers offered masks, um, sanitary products, gels, sprays, cleaning cleaning products, anything like that? They they were literally abandoned. Um, they so still there was no measures. You still get on as the public on the uh, on the front doors of the bus and direct. Uh, you know, uh, get the social distancing. There is no social distancing. You step on the front of the bus and you're directly there in front of uh, your bus driver. The, uh, the screen with the, uh, with the bus driver, of course, you've got the holes for communication that allowed uh, the, the means of transmission. You've got the old gap at the bottom of uh, the till where you, where you used to pay. I know we all use Oyster now, but where you used to pay, there's gaps there that allow transmission. Uh, bus drivers themselves had to really literally take uh, measures themselves where they started to um, uh, not allow passengers on the front uh, front doors. They started getting passengers to get into the uh, the middle doors, or some buses at that time, of course, at the at the rear doors. Um, they used to partition off uh, with would tape uh, the front two seats uh, on the buses to, uh, to to maintain social distancing. They used sticky tape, cling film, you name it. They used used to cover their own screen. They had to do this themselves. Um, when, when you yeah I mean you're you're describing quite vividly what what people had to do themselves what were the what were the employers responses to to this one of the first things I saw uh, from one of the employers Ariba I think um, I should have dug out the leaflet there was a, a, a notice from Ariba management uh, saying that there's there is no uh, uh, no agreement to uh, to these measures. We are aware that certain drivers are are partitioning off the front seats. There is no agreement to do this. This, if this continues, there will be uh, there will be further consequences and disciplinary action. Um, so, going back to London Underground, um, in your experience, were occupational risk assessments during the pandemic? I suppose you know, previously and now, uh, were they adequate? Um, have they changed over time and in, in what way? They have. I mean, the, the opening sentence of the London Underground stroke TFL risk assessment was uh, we are following the advice of the government and PHE. Um, we all just laughed, uh, very nervous uh, laughter. Um, basically, we thought, and this is what we put in our leaflets, we essentially they're going to try and run this on a wing and a prayer where we do the praying and they do the winging and frankly speaking the risk assessments were appalling um uh the the bame uh risk assessment for instance uh, didn't actually come out until the 5th of june um 
So there was nothing for uh, for Bain members, and it's it is you know as as a risk assessor myself, I mean, you have to understand the unless you deal with a disproportion, if you deal with a disproportion properly, then really what you're doing, you're covering all all uh, all risk and hazards for everybody really. So you start off with that disproportion, that disproportion of deaths, particularly. Um, uh, on you know so vividly in, in in the NHS and and on the buses, just looking at the faces, we were obviously aware of the disproportionate impact of uh, of of the um, of COVID, um, and that just wasn't really recognised, wasn't even assessed, and wasn't um, you know didn't come out in document form at all until June. Mm. So we were extremely slow. Mm. Um, in your witness statement, you've given some really sort of poignant examples of occupational risks. Um, I, I recall what, one of them is uh, talking about the, the way in which um, really you, you had to put quite a lot of pressure um, on TfL or London Underground um, to ensure that cleaning of um, the, the cabs for drivers was actually facilitated. Can you tell the panel a little bit about that, about that and, and how that actually occurred? Well, we um, we pushed for uh, a, a solid and consistent cleaning regime. Uh, TfL finally took that up, and they uh, put on a trial for a, a hospital-grade cleaning product. Um, the company is known as Zuno. Um, when was that? Zuno is. No, the no. Company. When when was that? When when oh, did that, that would have been in May? Right. So we, we, we're going on some time since the uh, the initiation of the lockdown on 23rd March. So we finally get that up and running. And there's a really simple thing we ask for. Um, and says, can you have, because in, in, in our cabs, training cabs, uh, train cabs, we have um, a little slot for our dockets for any kind of defects. And we said, look, all we want is a simple card saying, when was it cleaned? When's it due to be cleaned next? Um, Really simple, just so we got a means of uh, of recording uh, recording um, the cleaning regime. Um, they refused. They bluntly refused. Says no, nope, it's not necessary. So we said, okay, fine. Um, I myself at Brixton and another member of staff at um, at Seven Sisters, the two depots that covered the Victoria Line, uh, we booked on that morning uh, and we used uh, Section Forty Four of the Ninety Six Act, uh, Employment Act. And we refused to work on the grounds of health and safety. Uh, our trains remain in the sidings uh, and they didn't come out. And we said, unless you move on this, this matter will escalate. And unfortunately, we don't really want this to escalate because we know our job at this moment in time is to assist the NHS. So start, stop putting us in this impossible position. Now, our union uh, high, hierarchy, um, Terry Wilkinson and, and Finn Brennan went to the directors meeting and within that morning, uh, they had backed down and they had conceded, uh, conceded our demands. But why we had to even do that is, um, is really quite astonishing. Um, so from, from cleaning our cabs to everything, fighting for, for masks, fighting for the hand gel, fighting for gloves, uh, these were really quite ABC issues, uh, that, the fundamentals that should have been delivered, um, but things that we just had to constantly fight for, constantly ask for, and indeed, if need be, uh, also taking taking action uh, under legislation and refusing to work on the grounds of safety. Yeah. There's a, there's a, 
I think in your witness statement, there's a there's a more recent example of the um, the testing that was being done, um, the surge testing through uh, Wandsworth and Lambeth. Um, I was wondering if you could tell the panel and everybody watching um, what happened in respect of that and what action you had to take. Well, it's, it's, it's similar. Last last Monday, the government put out a, um, a notice for Wandsworth and Lambeth. It's now extended, I think, um, Southwark, Barnet, Uxbridge as well, uh, around the uh, South African region. Uh, now, it explains that anyone over the age of 11, um, whether you show displaying symptoms or not, is encouraged to take a, a PCR test and regular tests from there on in, but a PCR test. Um, everybody knew about it. Uh, and so we um, asked for members of staff asking uh, management, uh, so what are you going to do about this? Uh, do we have anything in place? Do we have an even acknowledgement that this has taken place? Um, management's response to drivers at the desk as they're booking the was, we don't know anything. We've not heard anything yet. So the following day on the Tuesday, uh, members of staff again asking, um, so what's going on with this? Do we have PCR tests? Where do we get them? Are we going to get our own sets and et cetera? And the response drivers were getting again was, we know nothing about this. Come Wednesday morning, uh, I book on at 4.40 uh, and I asked, where's, uh, where, where's the notice to even acknowledge that there's a, a surge testing taking place? We're in Brixton. Um, uh, you can... You know, where's the acknowledgement, and indeed, where's the uh, the uh, the process in place to collect PCR tests? Where to go to collect PCR tests? Um, the process in which to get uh, a home testing kit for a PCR test? Again, I was told we've not heard anything. So I said, well, then my train is stuck in the sidings, um, sidings uh, uh, twenty one at Brixton downstairs. I tell you what, it's not coming out. So I refuse to work on advance of health and safety. Um, come by nine o'clock that morning, there was a notice, uh, and uh, from uh, from Victoria Line and from Human Resources, stating that we are aware of surge testing for South African variant. Um, we are we understand that everyone over eleven should be taking uh, taking this uh, is encouraged to take this, and this is where you can collect them, and also indeed from the government website. But again, we had to push them, and indeed that's the only way they were going to listen was when they realised that a train's not coming out of sidings, isn't going to run. There was a train cancellation that morning. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure a, a lot of people watching this, and indeed the panel will remember many images um, in all of the lockdowns, actually, um, of um, London underground platforms being absolutely packed, just overcrowded, the trains crowded. I, I mean, from your perspective, how did that make you and your colleagues feel? Because of course it wasn't the fault of the people on the platforms, was it? So um, how you, you talk about this in your witness statement, I just wanted to sort of discuss it with you really. How did it make your, your colleagues feel? How did you feel about that? Well, particularly having seen what was happening on the buses, it made everybody a bit nervous and quite anxious, really. Um, we'd already had, I think about uh, 7,000 staff furloughed, um, we thirty percent of our staff uh, in in um, shielding or in isolation for various reasons, um, and so the service. So, I mean, in this situation, really to maintain social distancing, there is a logic to um, maximising the service 
and and reducing the inverting relationship between the service and the passenger traffic. So passenger traffic right right uh, um, at the lowest levels increasing service, and that's the way you're going to maintain uh, passenger um, social distance. Um, however, there's a finite uh, number of stocks, finite number of stations, so there's only so far you can go on the one end, and of course you've got staff off sick and etc. Uh, on the other end is to be the key element is. Now, we did eventually, with the first lockdown, get the numbers down to about 5% uh, of normal passenger traffic, but it took a constant fight and a constant... Um, revelation of what was going on on the underground i'm sure you saw footage um cctv footage of the numbers that we had on the platform and that was because they were the the messaging from government was too unclear uh, for people to realize that this is for essential travel only for key workers only and indeed um people look we've got something like five million five million people on zero hour contracts and when you give them the choice between um going out uh, and getting a wage to feed your family or isolating, these are going to be problems. So there was right from the off, there was there was those problems. And that's become an issue. The second lockdown, which we call the fake lockdown, um, the passenger numbers were anything between 35 and 40%. So no one really, I mean, we, we'd say we're now in the third lockdown, but the November lockdown was a joke. Um, and so we weren't surprised at all when we were moving towards the, the horrendous situation we ended up in late December um, and the the, uh, the surge um, that took and the number of lives that we lost uh, in that in that third third lockdown. Um, again, we got the passenger numbers down, but to about twenty percent. So, in comparison to the first lockdown where we did get it down to five percent, passenger numbers were still 15 percent higher in the third lockdown. And this is so it's a constant, constant, uh, constant problem we've had. Is that um, just out of interest in terms of it, the, the passenger numbers being down to about 20 percent in the third lockdown? Was that a sort of consistent um, level of passengers or did it sort of increase over time the further away we got from Christmas and January? Um, that was, I mean, when, uh, it's a good question, actually. Uh, we're talking about. It would have been different on different lines and different at different times. So we're talking particularly on peak. So um, if you look at the Victoria line, you can see particularly on the south, and you can see the demographic of the, of the people um, on on these trains. So you can obviously see the health workers on our line, Warren Street and Euston are key stations where you obviously see health workers getting off for UCLA hospital and etc. Um, and then you see a lot of uh, poor black immigrant workers, uh, construction workers, um, getting on from places like Walthamstow, from Black Horse Road, uh, getting off at key places like uh, Green Park at London Bridge, and particularly at places like uh, Vauxhall, uh, where, you know, uh, we're not allowed to do this, but we showed you some of the footage of people getting off at Vauxhall uh, during the peaks. Um, it was just horrendous, you know. Social distancing is complete nonsense, um, uh, and even even now, and it's slightly different now. Um, but the passenger numbers possibly came down a little more. But it was a constant. It was a constant problem we had, unless people were offered support, financial and otherwise, for isolation. It just wasn't going to happen, um, and that's been a consistent problem we've had throughout, really. We've. Um... 
we've heard elsewhere in other sessions of this inquiry that the current health crisis is an opportunity for fundamental change on many levels. Now, um, you talk in your witness statement about an employer's offensive against workers um, in efforts to restructure, rationalise and raise productivity to boost profits, essentially. Now, as an ASLEF train drivers union representative, what's that meant for workers in your experience? We are absolutely clear where this is going. You know, we've had a platitude, thank you for all the work you've done. It's brilliant. You've been keeping London moving, the blitz spirit and all the usual. Um, in reality, we didn't, we didn't care about what the politicians were saying or indeed what our management was saying. We knew that we had to do this for the NHS. We, needed to do, we knew why uh, we were doing what we were doing. Um, we were also aware that, um, that there would be opportunities, as they put it, uh, to start taking us on. Now, one of our strengths, particularly, we're quite hated, and our Prime Minister was, of course, the ex-London uh, mayor, and we don't get on. I don't think it's a state secret. Um, and he will, as will the Department for Transport uh, and others, will seek this opportunity to undercut the industrial muscle of uh, train drivers and tube workers, i.e. the massive disruption we cause when we go out on strike. How do you do that when passenger numbers are so low? i.e. our industrial strength, industrial weight, industrial uh, muscle has now been reduced. And this is the, now the opportunity in which to go for, for the unions on London Underground. So we've had a number of uh, bailout conditions. Of course, the way the funding model for TFL operates is it's largely from uh, passenger um, fears. Uh, with a massive drop in uh, passenger numbers means is. Um, uh, massive reduction in terms of finances for TfL, and so TfL have been going constant, consistently to the government for uh, for a bailout. Um, mm. That bailout comes with strings, and the strings are basically um, we do expect to see uh, workplace reform, uh, we do expect increased efficiencies and possible service level cuts as well. And as these conditions were being set by uh, the government, uh, they did two things. One is they issued a, uh, uh, they outsourced a report on TfL finances to KPMG. No one's seen this report. It was due out in, in August. I think it was a bit delayed, but no one to this date has seen this uh, seen this report. Um, and the other thing is, of course, uh, uh, our Prime Minister found the opportunity to go on, on, on uh, television and various news uh, reports to explain this is why we need driverless trains. So, it's pretty obvious which way that's heading. And the bailout uh, for the present period was due to end at the end of March. There's been what they call a rollover. And the rollover is uh, until the 18th of May, which is essentially to get onto the other side of the uh, London mayor elections, after which I suspect there will be an announcement. And I think we will be entering uh, a period of uh, serious industrial conflict. Mm. Um, final question from me, because I've got one eye on the clock um, before I hand you back to the panel. How could, in your view, frontline staff and key workers be better supported um, in work now and also in uh, future ep epidemics or pandemics? I think a great question, because the two are linked. What's going on now is across the board this is what i've just described industrially on london underground it's actually worse um elsewhere when you see the um 
the horrific uh, offensive against British gas workers, who uh, many have been sacked uh, because they refused uh, to sign up to uh, new contracts uh, that essentially make them work longer for less pay, 15% uh, less pay. Where you see in, in Manchester, um, bus workers out on an all-out strike at Queen's Road, uh, uh, go uh, go west north against against a fire and rehire, which is essentially the same thing, ripping up contracts of employment uh, for uh, for lesser pay. Uh, bus workers down here in London who've uh, just suffered horrifically, as as I've explained, in terms of number of deaths and what happened, uh, what's continuing during the pandemic, but now also fighting over their contracts and over their pay. Um, First thing that could happen is is um, respect people's contracts, their jobs, and and their their pay. Indeed, given pay rise, the obvious the obvious uh, one here is is the NHS. I mean, it's just an insult um, to all of us, really, that the the one percent um, pay offer. If you can afford thirty-seven billion for test and trace, they call it NHS test and trace. I mean, it's another insult. Um, thirty-seven billion pounds for um, for test and trace, uh, led by um, uh, Lady Hardin, who, for some reason, doesn't understand one of the fundamentals of a virus is that it mutates. She doesn't doesn't quite seem to understand this. Um, thirty-seven billion for them and one percent for. Uh, for NHS workers is um, it's an insult and it's horrific. It's also horrific because at this moment in time, really what we have is a contest between the vaccines and potential variants and further mutations getting around those vaccines. If there's further, if there's a further wave, whether it's South African, the Indian variant, um, and there's a further wave, a further, um, further impact of this virus, or indeed anything in the future. One thing that we have learned from this pandemic is that those who were worst hit were those in the poorest, famed communities um, uh, uh, and most deprived areas. If you, if there is an offensive that actually uh, deepens that, that crisis of deprivation, of inequality, of poverty, of racism, then come the next time, it will further compound, uh, further compound the crisis. So that that the, the two things are absolutely linked, um, really. Because I mean, the last thing I'll say, you know, it's just like you know, a, pr a prism will refract uh, white light. COVID has really shown us the full spectrum of what's wrong in uh, in society, and all those issues underlying uh, racism, the underlying issue of poverty, the underlying issue of uh, inequality, of low pay, of deprivation, of housing, all these issues are what have been, have been, been exposed by the, the spectrum of COVID. Anja Mirza, thank you very much for your evidence today. I'm going to pass you back to the panel. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Can I just kick it off? Because, I mean, it's um, a challenging horizon that you've... Um, you've painted here. And I'm thinking carefully because I have a personal interest in railways particularly. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm predicating my questions on the fact we're gonna be facing a pandemic of a sort, one way or another for the foreseeable future. It'll either be a new strain or the current strain where, where you're gonna to have to have restrictions on movement and contact. So, Bearing in mind that that is a realistic prospect, 
what I want to ask about is taking everything you've said into account, there really has to be, you know, you've got one side working out how to, in a sense, suppress you, and then on the other side, there ought to be a combined or unified movement towards a, a new vision for tra transport. We, we can't do without it, especially, you know, making not too many assumptions about the green economy. We're going to need a transport system in London, particularly in other conurbations. And maybe we need a new form of bus, a new form of train, but we also need a new vision towards how we treat the people who have to get on them, have to work in them, and they have to be supported economically. And the system itself has to be economically supported, which is actually reflective. And I'm just asking about a nationalized situation in which there is a unified transport policy, which has fairness at its heart for both those who work and those who travel. Now, is this something that is being thought about within your ranks or within uh, well, the TUC or somebody? Is somebody thinking about a future situation which has got to change dramatically? I don't disagree with what you just said at all. Um, we are now entering really uh, what we should be entering, a period of uh, reconstruction, really, um, and the railways and transport will be at the heart of that, um, not just in terms of pandemics, but also in terms of uh, climate uh, issues uh, as, as well. Um, a fully public-run, uh, owned, and coordinated um, transport system across all transport modes is uh, essentially what we what we need. Um, it is the um, the position of my union, uh, other transport unions, and indeed uh, of the TUC. The real issue is going to come is not just holding that position. Is let me be blunt about it. It's going to be a fight. Um, and when I mean by fight, I mean it's going to be it's going to be one hell of a struggle uh, because at this moment in time, what we're seeing is um, given a bit of a picture of what's happening on London Underground and the struggles industrial for conflict that's yet to come on the national rail. Um, the the level of attacks are are you know on on a scale that we've not seen since privatisation back in 1996. They're looking at kind of wholesale. Uh, redundancies of uh, of workers, fourteen thousand uh, redundancies across the network around, um, and a massive restructuring and rationalisation that's going to see a massive attack on uh, what they call the way they word it, pay benefits and pensions. Um, so that's going to be one almighty mighty struggle, um, strategically uh, and in terms of end goal. Definitely share the same same. Uh, Envision, which is a publicly owned uh, transport uh, system that's coordinated across uh, all, all modes. I'll just hand over quickly to the panel if there's any other question. Oh, yes, Professor, please. Thank you very much. For, um, Anjum, Mr. Mirza, thank you very much for your, your testimony. That was very, very revealing indeed. And you described the, the, the chaos um, that the, the transport system was left in when the pandemic first hit. And I'd be grateful if you could help us disentangle the extent to which this was because uh, management, your management, um, was not prepared for a pandemic, 
or the extent to which it was because they were not being given messages, advice, guidance by government, or were being given conflicting guidance by government. So which of those was it, or to what extent was it a combination of both of those things? Ultimately, it was a combination of both, but, you know, the old Russian proverb is that a fish rots from its head, and certainly it comes down to central government, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, so, in terms of the conflicting uh, messaging uh, messages from uh, from government, how slow they were to uh, react, um, and uh, the the underpinning uh, misunderstanding of what the virus was, i.e., they would still at that stage, and probably still some of them still think uh, we're actually addressing some variant of the flu, and it was. You know, it was qualitatively different. This 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 virus, um, the way we, we were addressing it, um, and the management side, essentially, and the, really the first sentence of the risk assessment says it is that we will follow government uh, and PHE advice. Basically, they thought it was a safe bet to just follow. Of course, they're the experts in government. Who's going to uh, who's going to challenge? Uh, um, you know, valence or witty and etc. Surely they must know what they're talking about. And so, trade unions, you say what you like and etc. But this is where the expertise is coming from. But of course, very quickly, um, we had the likes of uh, Richard Horton, with the likes of Alison Pollock. We had people like yourselves uh, keep our NHS public and our own direct experience. Those saying that there's a complete divorce between what we're getting from central government what management are saying and what our everyday experiences at work actually are. There's a huge, there's a huge divorce between, uh, between them. Mr. Mansfield, may I just have a quick follow-up? Yes, sir. Um, uh, in that case, uh, can you tell us with any confidence or do you have any confidence that um, the country, the transport workers of the country and their management are now prepared or recognise the need to be prepared or putting in place preparations for, as Mr Mansfield just alluded to, what is inevitably, sooner or later, going to be the next such um, uh, uh, pandemic or epidemic. Is your management putting these structures in place? Are, are you aware of whether they are or, or, or not? In terms of contingency and preparedness, um, particularly in terms of preparedness, I. To be honest with you, I have no faith in, in it at all. Um, they, they are a mess and they, they continue being a mess. Thank you very much. Yes, Dr. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Merza, for that um, compelling witness statement. I want to pick up on the point you made um, both just now and in your witness statements around the, the risk assessment um, side of things. So you've talked a fair bit now about the a risk assessment from the workplace and the area in terms of cleanliness and, and transmission risk, etc. But can you tell us a little bit about the risk assessment from the perspective of the individual? So in your statement, you attach the FAQ around things that line managers should be looking at and, and, and asking. But what was put in place should you be found to be vulnerable in terms of the support side of things? 
because I can see a situation where if the support isn't there, then the uptake is going to be low and it becomes a vicious cycle. So what was done to encourage the uptake and recognizing was voluntary and what was done to support um, anyone identified as vulnerable? Uh, very little. So, for instance, the, the bank risk assessment, when that was issued in June, um, it was like a declaration, we now have a BAME risk assessment, we've just ticked another box. In terms of encouraging, it was voluntary, encouraging people to take it, to do an assessment, um, it, it, that, that was non-existent, that was never kind of followed through. Um, as to when people did go uh, to um, for a risk assessment, they were sat there with a manager who obviously wasn't a risk, a risk assessor um, and really just went through a questionnaire. And it was um, it was an attempt to reassure people that there is a risk assessment, that the company has done everything in their, uh, in their, in their interest and safety paramount, uh, all of that. And, and really most people when they came back and reported the the process uh it certainly didn't encourage anyone else so i myself would be quite interested to see what the the figures would be uh, i suspect extremely low uh in terms of take up for the for the main risk assessment for for instance thank you very much indeed i'm going to bring the curtain down if i may although i think we could spend quite a lot of extra time listening to what you have to say could i thank you very much for giving up your time in thank this you. way Thank you. I will hand back to Lorna Hackett, please, for the next witness. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Uh, the next witness um, is Professor Raymond Ajias. Um, thank you. Um, my video is being turned off, I think. Oh, okay. Is there anything that we can do about that at this end? Okay. I, the host is now permitting me to. Okay, thank you. Yes, we can see you. Welcome. I think that's... Uh, Great. Are we all connected one way and another? Thank you. Yes. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Um, Professor Ajis, um, thank you for your witness statement. I have a witness statement uh, here before me dated the 17th of April 2021, which is uh, signed in manuscript uh, above, which is a declaration which says the, that you confirm that the opinions you've expressed represent your true and complete, albeit summarised, professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? Uh, almost. Uh, in, I did send that statement on the 17th, but over the weekend I spotted a mistake, yes. so I sent an ever so slightly revised version, only a few words on the 19th. Thank you. So for the record, I'd like the, the one on the 19th. The 19th. I'm but great. Thank the you. The difference is minimal. Thank you. Uh, could you give your uh, occupation, please, to the panel? Yeah. Um, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a doctor, I qualified in 1977, uh, worked in, in the NHS, although not necessarily mainly in the NHS for all 40 years of my professional life. Of course, for a big part of that time, more than half of it, I was in, in academic employment. Uh, so I was primarily uh, a, a university uh, appointee, but working in the NHS. Uh, as well uh, as most medical academics do. And uh, for the last uh, 16, 17 years of my professional life, I was uh, the professor of occupational and environmental medicine at the University of Manchester. And I led a, a, a center for occupational and environmental health there. And I was a consultant at the Manchester Trust. 
Uh, I retired officially from that job three and a half years ago, retaining just a little bit of research and teaching commitments. Uh, and then, of course, the pandemic struck. Um, uh, I had previously voluntarily relinquished my license to practice, but the GMC uh, restored that. Uh, and then I, I, well, I suppose I remobilized is, is the best word to describe it. So uh, um, here I am now. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start, if I may, with a, a question arising from the previous witnesses' evidence. Um, we've just heard uh, from Mr. Mirza that um, his employers, and indeed, uh, I think, Transport for London, were saying that they were following government and PHE advice in respect of risk assessments. Now, in respect of employers undertaking risk assessments for employees at work, is it ever sufficient to state that they are following PHE guidance? Okay, well, I've got to be uh, cognizant of the fact that I'm uh, in front of two uh, barristers schooled in, in law, which I, I never formally was, but of course, as part of my training in occupational medicine, yes, I, I do have an awareness of health and safety law. First and foremost, the 1974 Act and legislation that stems from it, uh, not just the Act, but lots of other things, place an obligation on employers to conduct what's called a, a, a a suitable and sufficient assessment of the risk to all workers, besides an obligation to the individual worker. And the, the more generic assessment is got to be proportional to the uh, uh, scale of, of, of the risk. Uh, and I think few people would disagree that for something of, of the magnitude of, of, of this pandemic, it warranted a very detailed uh, and, and um, substantive assessment by employers of the general uh, risk to their employees. And therefore, I would contend that to merely say we read PHE guidance and that's what we're doing would, in my opinion, uh, be, be very disproportionately poor in comparison to, 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 to the risk. That's insofar as the general uh, risks to their employees in various categories of employment and so on. Uh, but employers also have at law, according to the 74 Act and subsequent legislation stemming from it, an obligation to the individual. Uh, and again, the individual circumstances are, are such that you can't, you can't just find a, an answer in PHE guidance uh, and look at it. And indeed, we have to bear in mind that PHE, the PHE is, is part of, of, uh, of, of the Department of Health and Social Security, part of government, should be acting in our best interests. But uh, we have to look critically, in my opinion, at all the evidence, not just what the PHE uh, said since the pandemic started, but indeed what the PHE and its uh, employees had said before the pandemic. Um, uh, which in not, is not congru entirely congruent with what they're saying now in all respects. Uh, I'm not sure that that answers your question. No, it does. Thank you. Um, exhibited to your witness statement is a, a document called the COVID Risk Control Matrix, which yes. I understand you published as part of the COVID Control Measures Working Group of the British Occupational Hygiene Society. Can you explain uh, to the panel what, what that is and what its significance is, please? Yes, um, I, I, uh, I'm no longer a member of that society, but uh, I had been a, 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 its president once. 
And what happened when the pandemic uh, started is, is that lots of organizations, that one, uh, the Faculty of Occupational Medicine, Society of Occupational Medicine, a whole list of them, all said, what can we do? And more importantly, what, what do we need to do? And in some instances, what must we do? So having identified that there were gaps, that there were employers out there struggling with the risk assessment, and also finding that our conclusions were not necessarily congruent with those of Public Health England, we felt professionally that we had an obligation to get our heads together. We had to cut a few corners in the sense that time was of the essence. We couldn't have absolutely 100% scientific proof for everything we said, but we had to make guesstimates of the level of risk, use our professional judgment as to what we thought would be reasonable precautionary steps and put it out there. <coughs> this is our opinion. It gives you an idea of how you can map out the exposures of your employees and then say, see what we have to say as to what sort of uh, measures to control the risk should be used. And, and that is one of, one of the many attempts at generic uh, 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 advice that professional bodies have put out there. Mm -hmm. There's um, a, a publication also uh, of the Industrial Injuries Advisory Council, uh, a link to which again is in your witness statement, which provides a, a very lengthy list of occupations. It's, a, I have to say, I encourage anybody who is is watching and has access to the witness statement to to click on that link. It's a, it's a very extensive list of occupations and the risks associated with it. Um, now, um, one of the statistics which I think you subsequently cited in uh, an article in the British Journal of General Practice is that compared to non-essential workers, healthcare workers have a sevenfold increase in risk of severe COVID-19, testing positive in hospital or death. Now, but what are the other factors which increase the likelihood of death or serious illness, in your view? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you highlighted that. First and foremost, it bears repeating that the principal determinant of uh, um, dying from the disease is, is catching it in the first place and therefore being exposed to the virus. And I shall come back to you later as to why I stress this blatantly obvious point. Then on top of that, there are other uh, uh, risk factors which, which relate to the individual uh, and, and to his or her, her background. For example, uh, men have got higher risks of dying if they contract the disease than women. The risk rises exponentially with age, meaning that at my age, my risk would be a uh, hundred or a thousand fold greater than that of my, my, my children uh, or grandchildren and so on. Uh, and then prior morbidity, prior illness or concurrent illness, should I say, things like diabetes, for example, respiratory disease, kidney disease and so on increase the risk. And then there are risks that are related to, to body mass, the more overweight you are in proportion to your, your frame, the greater the risk, and risks which relate also to, to ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Difficulty with understanding these risks is that lots and lots of factors uh, interact. Uh, it is a very complex relationship. So for example, if you look at the risk that relates to ethnicity, the, the biologically, the evidence such as it is would suggest that the, the difference in risk between somebody of a black skin uh, and somebody of a white skin is, is 
to a similar order or perhaps less by virtue of the simple biology than the risk between a male uh, and a female of, 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 of whatever ethnic background. But on top of that, you then have layered the other socioeconomic factors. If you are living in crowded accommodation, if you are poor in, 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 your, in your means, if the jobs you do are blue collar jobs with not adequate protection, that tends to correlate to socioeconomic factors, to ethnicity and so on, which is why the answer to your question is, is exceedingly complex, but I've done my best to sort of explain the, the bottom line on the complexity. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, your, in your witness statement, you just discuss uh, RIDOR statistics. So uh, for the uninitiated, uninitiated um, I'd like to talk about what they are and what their role is in respect of the health and safety executive. Right. The, the law of the land, uh, uh, since the last century, although there have been a number of iterations of these regulations, the most recent being in 2013, but they date back in the origin several years, places an obligation on employers to inform, to inform the, the enforcing authority, which in most instances is the health and safety executive, but in a substantial proportion uh, could be a local authority, um, of certain events. Uh, some are dangerous occurrences, which we won't go into for our purposes, but the most important for our purposes is when uh, an employee contracts a disease and a reasonable judgment can be made, the words reasonable judgment are the words of the regulation, that uh, on the balance of probability that that, that uh, disease was contracted at work, uh, provided it fits in certain categories of disease, of which infectious disease and COVID is one, then they are obliged to inform the uh, enforcing uh, authority. Um, the, the, there are some problems though with this. One is uh, everybody, not least the HSC, concede that the uh, reporting uh, is, is very, very, very patchy, very limited. There is gross under-reporting. And also, as I pointed out in an editorial in the British Medical Journal uh, and in other publications, my colleagues and I also argue that the guidance to support uh, the reporting has not been good enough. It has been flawed in the sense that HSC has said, well, if, if, if you think that the infection was, was, was contracted at work, but not from a, from a patient or from a sick person, I mean, really don't think you should report that. I'm obviously paraphrasing the, the, the regulations. And we think that's flawed because as in, in, in the example given by the, the previous speaker, a uh, lot of people um, say in transport would have contracted the infection in the course of their work. There are exceptions, like if a doctor uh, says to the employer that they should report it. The employer is not obliged to, but According to HSC, it would be reportable, so the wording's rather weak. And another flaw is that the HSC says that um, the exposure should be taken into account. That in itself is not a bad thing. It is sensible to take the exposure into account. But the HSC then goes on to say, uh, for example, whether the guidance um, uh, recommended by, by Public Health England is followed. And that to us is, is a bit of a trap, though, because many contend, myself included, that PHE guidance does not provide adequate protection. 
And if you're basically telling employers, oh, well, that nurse uh, in accident and emergency was wearing a surgical mask, which is what PHE said that he or she would, and therefore they contracted COVID, we don't think they got it from work, so don't tell us. The net result of that is that those cases will not be reported to uh, HSC. And as far as HSC is concerned, well, there isn't a problem because we haven't had those reports. And, and it's not just a question of the numbers being undercounted, it's a question of this vital opportunity to, to investigate having been missed. And, and even by the HSC's own numbers, they've had about 30,000 of these reported, uh, and they haven't even published all the numbers, that some bits in the first month are missing. And then even if you subtract from those uh, the sort of five, 6,000, which are local authority cases and HSC doesn't have the information about those. You then still left about 25,000 reports which HSC has received. And then you ask them, how many of these have you investigated? And they say, well, we've started investigations on, on nearly 500, although the investigations may be for more than one uh, employee if, if, if they were reported in batch. But you still sort of look at the back of an envelope and think, the vast majority of these haven't been investigated at all. And, and, and we should have learned lessons at least after the first wave to, to protect from the second wave. So in the first wave, we've had at most 1,200 cases reported per week, which is bad enough. We had several months in the run up to the second wave. And then the second wave, we reached a peak of, of reports of 1,700, uh, per, sorry, not per month, per, per week. Um, uh, and and uh, you say, well, the investigations weren't done, the lessons weren't learned, and, and all these people suffered illness, illness and died. And as I've argued in various papers for recent reasons, which I've already shared with you in outline, we believe that these statistics, such as they are, already underestimate how bad the problem is. Mm. Uh, I conscious of time so uh, I probably have one or two more questions for you into, uh, before I pass you back to the panel but uh, your I think it's quite a recent letter in the BMJ um, you explained that um, the PHE pandemic policy was effectively influenced by the need to rationalize the rationing of PPE yes. um, by limiting um, FFP masks to uh, just AGP which is aerosol generating practices yes. so I mean, that's that's a clear uh, piece of evidence relating to uh, the way in which, of course, as you said earlier, one of the key risk factors is actually getting the virus in the first place. What sort of um, what other factors contributed to the risk of healthcare associated uh, infection and horizontal transmission amongst staff? Um, we believe, and I'm not alone in this, that the airborne transmission of the virus has been grossly underestimated. And we are not just saying this with the benefit of hindsight. If you look at what was learned after the uh, first coronavirus outbreak, which was the SARS outbreak early in the century, SARS-CoV, SARS uh, it should have been called SARS-CoV-1 because we were now talking of SARS-CoV-2, but you see what I mean, a sister or a cousin of the virus we've got now. And then there was the MERS outbreak, the Middle East uh, respiratory syndrome. Again, virus is very, very closely related to this one. And the conclusions drawn from that by Public Health England, by the WHO and so on, is that this was likely, these were likely spread by inhalation and that healthcare workers, even just looking after patients, 
never mind doing any fancy procedures, needed to have this protection. The HSC in 2008, to its benefit, because it, to its credit, I should say, uh, did research which showed that surgical masks will hardly stop the virus at all. You can always find the virus that's gone through, whereas FFPs will, 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 will be much, much, much better, orders of magnitude better and prevent this. The HSC had said in its guidance of 2013 or 2014, you should treat biological agents as being fine particles and you should use the equivalent of an FFP3. So all this was evidence was there, all the lessons had been learned, yet when the pandemic struck, all of a sudden we told, we do not have absolute proof that the virus can be measured in air. We think you can get by with a surgical mask. And, and, and that is why we have now used this phrase, which will appear on the BMA on BMJ print edition on Saturday, rationing, uh, rationalizing the rationing, trying to find reasons why you can sort of clamp down. Now, what really grates with me wasn't just that in the first wave this happened because the country was, was unprepared in terms of stock, because many other countries were unprepared in terms of stock, not just this one. Uh, let's concede that point. What really bugs me is that the country invested, as we heard earlier from Mr. Mirza, billions in buying PPE. They are sitting in thousands of containers in Felix Todok and elsewhere. And if those had been mobilized for the second wave more widely, not just nurses, bus drivers, so on, then we would not have had the peak, in my judgment, that we have, in fact, had. Mm -hmm. um, final question from me. What to the future? How do we how do we change policy? How do we protect um, key workers, NHS staff, including Black, Asian, and minority ethnic staff? Okay, first I'll start with the generic methods before I, I go into the specific high risk groups. Because as I, I said earlier, these high risk groups like uh, BAME staff and so on, a lot of the risk is actually related to the exposure the jobs that they do and the degree of protection that they have or more sadly did not have. Only a little bit of the, of the excess risk relates to biologically, if you like, the color of the skin and so on. So I think we, we need an absolute revisiting of methods of engineering control, ventilation in buses so you have separate ventilation for the drivers, for the rest of the people, hospitals, massive investment uh, in ventilation there, schools and so on, all those things, some of which could have been done in the summer but weren't. We need an acknowledgement of the uh, risks of aerosol spread with the appropriate precautions. And then we need, in terms of individuals, a much clearer emphasis for employees, for employers to be told, listen, you have this responsibility and this responsibility is proportionate to the risk. You cannot just say, we read this PHE guidance on the web and that's what we're doing. Thank you. Uh, Professor Raymond Agius, I don't have any more time for any questions for you, but I'd like to hand you back to Mr. Michael Mansfield, who uh, may have some questions from the panel. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, I have one that I just want to ask. I, I'm conscious of the time, but I'm really going back to the beginning whereby, um, you know, it, it's trying to avoid getting it in the first place. So I'm, I'm going to try and apply a bit of common sense here. If you're in a, and I, I'm, not, I'm not asking questions about the definition of a key worker, frontline worker, whatever. 
in a sense, if you're, you're in a situation in which you are dealing with the public, particularly in a healthcare situation, but any of the other emergency services or many of the commercial situations as well. The first thing is at the moment, if I were in any of those, and I'm not, I wouldn't go to work without the vaccine. So until I've been vaccinated, this is what police officers were saying. Why are we being put into this situation before we got the vaccine? So the first thing is, if the vaccine is what it's cracked up to be, and I'm not necessarily saying it is, you have to have a precondition for the frontline person, whoever they are, which is, sorry, can't do the job until I've got the vaccine. Now that may, of course, that's an economic problem, but then we've got to be looking at the two at the same time. And I think there are other preconditions which get into the type of um, protection that can be afforded and doesn't sit in Felix O'Docks. So am I being unreasonable about all this or am I facing what is a reality from now on because we're not, as it were, putting it all behind us tomorrow? Um, okay, well, I can't teach my grandmother to suck eggs, so I can't possibly claim to teach you the law, but for the benefit of the audience, not for yourself, because you know all this. Uh, um, no, don't, don't bank on that. Sorry? Don't the the employer has an obligation so far as is reasonably practical to take steps to, to, to protect their workers. And yes, I, I would contend, I'm not a lawyer, that it is reasonably practical for employees to expect to be vaccinated. And on this on this subject, uh, I, 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 I do feel that some other countries probably ad adopted a slightly better policy than this one, in that they recognised the issue of occupational uh, exposure and therefore did vaccinate the occupationally high-risk groups, not just in healthcare, but elsewhere at a higher degree of priority. For example, I would have contended that for teachers, for example, they, they really should have been vaccinated with three weeks to spare to build up an immune response uh, before the, the, the children went back. Because yes, it's true, that would have set back the vaccination of older people like myself, but I'm at home really relatively well protected. Whereas those, 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 those teachers would all of a sudden have the surge of uh, exposure. So yes, I do agree with you that, that uh, people who are taking this burden by virtue of their work on behalf of, 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 of society uh, deserve that, that level of, of protection as a, as a precondition and the right levels of personal protection as well as the vaccine, again, as a fundamental right. Right, well, I think, um, sorry to have to say that it's uh, my prerogative to call this to an end at this stage because time has run on. You've been extremely interesting and may I thank you very much for your time. Thank I think you. we're now going to have a few minutes break before the next two witnesses. So perhaps we could take the break at this stage. Michael, we were, we were, we were thinking we could do without the break as we've run on a little bit longer. Oh, right, fine. Sorry, I didn't realize that. Yeah, we've only oh, just decided, sorry. It's all right, it's all right. Well, then we'll go straight on. Um, and I hope the counsel to the inquiry is fully prepared to call the next witness right now. Thank you, Mr. Mansfield. Uh, the next uh, witness is Kirsty Brewerton. Kirsty, are you there? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, Kirsty, um, thank you for your witness statement. I have a witness statement 
before me uh, dated the 18th of April 2021, um, above which uh, there's an electronic signature and uh, the statement, you confirm that the opinions that you've expressed represent your true and uh, complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. Could you give your uh, occupation to the panel, please? Yeah, so I'm a clinical sister in the NHS um, and I am also, um, I started a community organisation that I am the CEO of, so I run that as well. And what, and what's, uh, what does the community organisation do? So it's basically I've had tr uh, trouble with my mental health over the years and one of the things that really helped me through that time was being creative. Um, so when the pandemic started, um, myself and a friend decided that we thought it would be a good idea to try and keep get Coventry creative and keep them connected throughout um, the lockdown. So that's what we've been doing. Great. OK, well, there's a plug there for you. Um, what, um, how, how long have you been working in the NHS? So this year, it'll be seven years since I qualified. Um, I spent most of that time in A&E, um, where I was a staff nurse until January last year. Um, so prior to me leaving that post, I'd had about six months off um, due to stress and depression. Um, and I decided not to go back to that post. Um, and then I applied for this new role, um, believing it would be an, in elective orthopaedics. And obviously when I started, uh, it was in the middle of the pandemic. So um, it was no longer orthopedics. It was a, it was a COVID ward when I began. So um, in, let me take, I'm going to deal with what happened um, when you first arrived on the uh, orthopedic ward um, in a bit, but can you just tell the panel um, what your experience has been of working in the NHS over the last seven years, what changes you've seen, what um, struggles you've come across, just overall? So I've basically seen the gradual decline of services and, um, and I've seen how sort of the impact of these decisions that are being made um, are quite um, intense and um, really, really worrying for me um, as an NHS worker. So obviously within A&E, um, we become a bit of a bottleneck in terms of the entire hospital. So when people keep coming in and, and getting admitted, um, I'm sure people can remember from previous winters and um, the sort of images of people queued up in corridors on, on trolleys. Um, and that was kind of my reality for, for a few years. And, and the issue was that I was just seeing that progressively get worse and worse. Um, and there didn't really seem to be much um, that I, I felt sort of was being implemented to try and make any real tangible changes to this. Um, and not only that, there was, there's also the issue of the, the, we've got less staff. So, you know, the numbers were going up and the workload was increasing and you've got less people to then help out and deal with that. So I felt at times I was, I was forced to work in, in unsafe 
um, conditions um, in terms of for patients, not, not necessarily for myself back then. Um, well, I mean physically, but obviously mentally it was very damaging and I did, did end up um, having what was essentially a mental breakdown. Um, I was suicidal and I, it took me, like I say, six months to kind of get any sense of myself back. Um, and I think the, it's the impact of the moral, the moral injury of feeling unable to do your job properly um, when you're looking after people. And you go into this job because you care about people and you want to make them better. And when you're, you feel like you're forced into a situation where you're unable to do that and to do your job to the level that you trained at, um, it's, it's really hard, like mentally. If you care about your job, then you want to do it well and you, you don't go into nursing to potentially harm people. Um, and that is how, how it feels sometimes, is that you're put in those situations where you cannot do um, a decent job and it is unsafe. Now, we, we've heard during this inquiry of lots of people who talk about the, the, their job descriptions, uh, specifically working in the NHS, uh, changed during the pandemic. And as you said at the beginning of your evidence, you came in uh, to what you thought was an elective orthopaedic ward, and it was in fact a COVID ward. So when you first arrived back at work um, in the middle of, uh, was it April, June? Yeah, it's the start of April, I, I, I began, yeah. Right. Um, what, what was your experience? What, what happened? Um, I just, I, I was quite, we were just thrown in. Um, I think we didn't have a great deal of time to plan. Um, it was just obviously very reactionary. So the services that were deemed as um, not necessarily vital, um, those were then asked to be redeployed um, to different areas. <clears throat> I did, we did find in that first wave, there seemed to be a lot more staff. Um, so, you know, people that were pulled from these various different um, departments, people from the community, you know, um, they pulled all the students. Um, so during the first wave, it was difficult, um, but there did seem to be more staff available. This, this final wave that we've just kind of um, overcome was really, really tough, really tough. And, it, and there was, the staffing was, it was the worst I think I've ever seen it. Um, you know, there was instances where there was like one nurse to 21 patients um, and they were like scrabbling around trying to find somebody. Um, yeah, they, I think we got, the problem was, obviously, we were then also having to provide the vaccination programme. Um, so a lot of those community, um, those people in the community services were busy doing that. Um, so that, we didn't have the support from that side. Um, we were losing staff. I think we've lost staff throughout the pandemic because we we, you know, it's difficult to retain people during this kind of situation. Um, there's also been, you know, I, I know of quite a few people who have um, contracted 
um, COVID and ended up with long COVID. So they have left their profession because they don't, they're unable to work now. Um, and there's, you know, the PTSD, you know, I think that for me is um, one area that was perhaps not really, you know, obviously we had the issues with the PPE, but it was a, that was a very obvious um, lack of protection. Whereas with them, with mental health, I think it's much more, more, more subtle and it's perhaps not something that's thought about straight away, but, you know, we're not trained to deal with these kind of situations, you know, maintaining our own mental health is not part of our nurse training. Um, you know, we're not routinely risk, risk, risk assessed for any mental health problems um, or, you know, if, or stress even. Um, you know, there is that, I mean, the, where I am now is so, so great for mental health support for staff. Um, and throughout the pandemic have been offering um, various different services for staff. And it has been, you know, I've accessed it and I know other people have accessed it and it has really helped. I think the problem is that it's sporadic. It's like, it's, it, it, it varies from trust to trust. There's no standard, um, you know, way of assessing the mental health of your staff. There's no um, sort of standard risk assessment. There's no minimum amount of support that should be available um, for if and when um, staff do need it. And I do think there is a duty of care there for um, the NHS and, and, and for trusts to kind of recognise that we are at risk. We were at risk before this, way before this. And I'm proof of that, you know. Um, this has been a problem for a long, long time. It's a stressful job and it's getting ever increasingly more more stressful. Um, so for it not to be like an, a priority um, is worrying for me. And if we we want to retain staff, um, I think it's, it's something that really should be seriously addressed by all trusts. Um, yeah. you, you talk about, um, about risk assessments not being, um, particularly sort of coherent and that and that um I'd like to sort of ask you about the beginning of um the pandemic um in your witness statement you talk about um access to testing for example and that was really um patchy at the time it was really difficult to get a test and you talk about um at the beginning the risk assessments also undertaken I know you've just mentioned about sort of staff well-being and mental health um how did that change over time over the course of the pandemic they started yeah. where health safety so yeah the in terms of testing when at the start of the pandemic um like i said in my statement it was difficult to get tests for people um so they had to meet a certain criteria to, to qualify them um to be able to have a test which um so when it first started it was about whether they've been um abroad if they'd been in china or if they'd been in contact with people who had traveled um but there was obviously a sort of crossover period there where there was transmission between people within the uk um so but we weren't testing um those people necessarily because they weren't meeting this criteria um and i think that there was that period which really put people at risk not just um, staff, but obviously patients as well. Um, then 
I think with risk assessments at the start, it was more generalised. So it was more about um, sort of pre-existing conditions that you got, any risk factors in terms of your health, your age, um, those kind of things. And people were then obviously scored and would sort of um, advised accordingly. So there was a, quite a lot of staff who ended up going off shielding. So that obviously had a massive impact again on our staffing levels. Um, and there was there was kind of a, a system of um, so trying to keep certain wards as maybe a COVID area or an area that wasn't. Um, and if it was an area that wasn't, then certain staff who'd been risk assessed could go there. You know, it was it was those kind of things that were at play um, to begin with. As time went on, and obviously the sort of the statistics were coming out about um, you know BAME individuals um, being at increased risk, that then um, that then became um, part of a regular risk assessment, and and again people were then advised that they couldn't work in certain areas or or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I think similarly to the um, the chapter who. Drives the trains. Who was um, on earlier? I think similarly, it came quite. It did come quite late, um, but it does seem to have since it's been implemented. It is a very regular thing that they are. They do seem to keep rechecking. Now, the um, as we've heard elsewhere, um, and I think you allude to this as well in your written statement. The uh, the guidance changed frequently. What effect did that have on your ability to do the job of caring for patients? It was really difficult really difficult I think in so when I was when I was in A&E I was a sister and then um, I was a staff nurse and then in the, this new job I was a sister so I felt this like much more responsibility and like um you know the, the care of the safety um of the patient and the staff was um sort of I was directly responsible for it um and that was quite difficult when guidance was changing quite quickly and it was quite hard to um, understand even at times um, and to follow. Um, and there were times that I felt that the guidance went against my personal um, sort of opinion on what was safe. Um, and I didn't feel there was much I didn't feel there was much really thought about how that would affect us as staff. Um, and, you know, the moral injury almost of making these sort of ethical decisions um, that, I mean, I didn't actually have really any power in, you know, I was just being told to implement them. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really difficult at times. And there was like one instance where I, it just, I just couldn't, um, yeah, I just didn't agree with the decision, basically. Um, so I I didn't finish my shift that day and I just said, like, I can't, I can't carry on because I just really don't agree with this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it was it was hard. And I know that there's a lot of other staff who have had to make really, really tough decisions. Um, and trying to then explain to patients as well and their families, like, you've been treating them one way throughout this whole thing, and then, oh, sorry, 
um, we've just heard that now actually it's safe for us to do X, Y, and Z that like 20 minutes ago we were saying you weren't allowed to do because it's not safe. And that that's really difficult. Um, so yeah, it was tough. It was tough. Um, I've got other questions that I'd like to ask you, but sadly I'm going to run out of time. So at that stage, uh, Kirsty Brewson, thank you very much for your evidence and I'm going to pass you back to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. He's going to pass you straight across to uh, Dr. Davis. I know wants to ask about the moral injury. Hi, thank you very much for that evidence. And I think the moral injury concept is a really, really important one because I want I, you described it exactly that staff had responsibility but no power to do the right thing. Uh, and after all, if a pilot turns up and finds that the plane, the wheels have dropped off the plane and the cabin crew isn't there, they can refuse to fly the plane, but NHS staff can't actually do that. And you're describing a nurse with 21 patients who, who just had to get on with it. So my, my question really is, do you think there's a danger that individual staff will end up being blamed for system failure in this wretched state of affairs? And how do you think staff can take care of themselves and push back against this, for instance, by demanding minimum staffing levels or, or ways of protecting our moral health against the moral injury that you're describing? Um, yeah, so I think, yeah, in terms of sort of fighting for uh, improvements in that area, I think it's definitely something that we should do. Um, I think the, one of the main issues I'm finding, so I am a union rep as well, um, and I have been campaigning for certain, you know, for better PPE and certain things across the, um, the course of the last year. And um, I feel, I think people are, staff are really disheartened and really, I don't think that they believe that they've, one got a chance to win and that they're really being supported to challenge those major decisions mm. um and things like demanding um minimum staffing levels it's been something that's been talked about for years within nursing um but it just never seems to really you know it's still that it, there's no minimum unless you're in itu or certain specific areas it's it's kind of down to the trust really um so yeah I think there's a major issue with trust actually with staff and with um those that should be perhaps fighting um for for these things mm -hmm. um I, I do worry that with the moral injury aspect that it's going to have a massive impact on um on retention um, and I think, you know, you definitely touched on it. There is this responsibility within healthcare workers where they feel that they can't, you know, they can't walk away from it, from those kind of situations. Um, but that in itself has such a massive impact on, on your um, mental health. Um, so, yeah, I'm I am concerned. Um, and I just hope that trusts do it's you know are really mindful of it and start putting some some of these measures in place and um, to try and support that staff moving forward. Thank you. I turn to the other two panel members in case there are any other questions at this stage. No. All right. Well, can I thank you very much indeed for coming and spending time with us. I'm sorry there are all these time constraints, but 
I think the moral injury concept has been pointed out is extremely useful. Thank you for having me. And would council call the last witness, please? Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Mansfield. The last question is Dr. Chidi Ejimofo. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Can you see yes, me? Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Ejimofo, I don't have a uh, witness statement from you, but I do know that you are prepared to uh, provide evidence today. So the first thing I need to do is uh, ask you to confirm that the opinions that you are about to express represent your uh, true and complete professional opinions on the matters to which they refer. Yes. Thank you. Uh, could you give your um, full um, occupation um, to the panel, please? Okay, I am a consultant in emergency medicine. I um, graduated in 1991. I'm a fellow of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, a fellow of the College of Surgeons Edinburgh, um, and I've been a consultant for 11 years. Thank you. Um, just to start with, what was your experience of uh, the frontline staff um, that you were acquainted with and that you worked with um, in waves one and two of the pandemic? Okay, so in the first wave, I would say fairly typical for um, ED staff and um, the acute staff that I work with um, from other specialties, it was more a case of anticipation. Um, we were dealing with something novel, um, something that we'd not necessarily been trained to do, but we saw was within our capacity. Um, that's, so that led to a great deal of enthusiasm um, within the staff. Um, I think that was swiftly tempered by the escalation in terms of patient numbers and also the things that we were called upon to do. Um, I think it swiftly became apparent that we had insufficient resources for what we were being asked to do. Um, so within the frontline staff, I think there was, I say, enthusiasm, frustration because of the inadequate um, resources, inadequate direction from at a national level. In a lot of ways, we were having to um, create our own guidance. Um, people contacting areas that had had the initial wave, so we were pretty much daily looking up papers from China and from Italy to work out what we should be doing because we weren't getting anything nationally. Um, we were having to work out ways of um, parlaying what had been, what would be the normal kind of physical limitations within an emergency department that suddenly has to be changed to becoming pandemic ready without any additional resources. Um, so there was that, the, the strain of having to do all of these. And at a time, because for, I'd say, at least three to four weeks, there wasn't any change in the actual normal way of doing business within the hospital. So I, I whilst preparing for this, I actually looked at some of my old emails and saw an email saying, oh, are you getting ready for your appraisal? Well, not really, because I'm really dealing with <laughs> pandemic patients coming in right now. So, so it took quite a while for the kind of um, 
slow machinery to catch up. And that was uh, common throughout for all of the, all levels of staff. Mm. It took can quite just, a while for that to catch up. Can I just stop you there? I, I just want to get an idea of the timing of that. So when you're getting an email for your appraisal uh, or for somebody else's appraisal, um, when was that approximately in in respect of um, the timings of last year? So, for example, we've got the first lockdown, 23rd of March. Yes. Was it before that? So that was before all of that. Um, we, um, where I um, practice, we saw the, the first case that's actually presented in London. Um, so we were actually doing COVID testing um, in the ambulance car park um, in early February. I can remember being out in the middle of um, Storm Chiara and carrying out testing in the rain. So, Who were you testing? Um, well, these were essentially community patients. It was the walking well because there was nothing put in place. People had been directed, go to A&E. Do not go to your GP, do not go anywhere else. So we became a testing centre as well as treating patients. Mm -hmm. So uh, what was the um, impact on you personally uh, when, the, when the pandemic hit? So um, I think uh, for a lot of doctors, nurses who work on the more acute side of medicine, um, you are up for a challenge. The, of course, that is tempered by the fact that you need to have those resources in place so that you can adequately meet the challenge. So that was the initial reaction. I think it very swiftly was replaced by a sort of dogged determination to try and get through despite all the obstructions that were in the way. It just became very hard. And I think we started re relying on our own resources. Um, we didn't have, uh, we had insufficient PPE. We were very unhappy with the guidance that we were getting nationally, for instance, for masks. So we, um, we resourced them ourselves. We paid for them ourselves uh, as a consultant body so that our staff had um, PPE that we, they could have confidence in. Um, so you, you had that. And also there was just the general day-to-day -day strain of insufficient staff because our staff were falling sick in common with everybody else. If anything, I would, I suspect at a higher rate. Um, and of course the underlying fear, um, as you may tell, I. <laughs> sort of fall into some of the risk categories. Um, and a large number of our staff are uh, come from uh, the BAME um, group. And just trying to encourage people, but not being able to give them any actual concrete proof that what they were doing was safe, and yet having to rely on them, because otherwise your department will fall apart. So that was the first wave. Right. Okay. Um, and, and again, sticking with the first wave, what kind of changes did you uh, did your hospital uh, and the A and E department have to uh, to make in order to accommodate the pandemic? Okay. So you suddenly are faced with a highly infectious, novel disease um, that, as because we were getting guidance changing pretty much every day, um, and you're unsure of 
the exact mode of transmission. We knew for a large part that it was airborne, but for a long period of time, we were also told, told about um, surface contamination. So we had to separate out our streams of patients from those who were quite probably COVID from, to, from those who were not. But we only had a fixed, a limited amount of space and a department that was built to have flow from one end in and the other way out. And all of a sudden you had to split that into and make sure that they were hermetically sealed from one another to prevent cross-contamination. And it's more than just because any um, the emergency department, you have an area for the less acute problems, um, what used to be called minors, it might be called an urgent care center. You had the majors area and you had a recess area and you had to duplicate that on both sides. In addition, you have to staff both of those areas. And it's not as simple as just splitting your own work workforce in two. Um, so it required staff being brought from other areas to help uh, in an area that they were not um, that they weren't conversant with, and you had to split your waiting areas so that the patients weren't cross contaminating one another, and you had to bring in additional staff to triage patients from the very get go, both at um, the walk-in patients and also patients in the ambulance. So we were doing a lot of stuff on the on the hoof. Um, I had an innovative, I, I had a um, consultant colleague who is excellent at ultrasound and she managed to put together a, a system whereby we were able to um, scan patients in the ambulance so that we could determine who was supposed to be in the right place and who wasn't. But again, I must stress, all of this was coming from us. This, we weren't getting any guidance from elsewhere. So that was the the first wave. Um, how what what differed and what changed and what practices did you implement in the second? So by the second wave, we were already quite conversant in terms of what we need to do in order to split the department and to change the um, our workforce demands. I think by the time we'd got to the second. By this time, you were now talking about more of um, the, the enthusiasm had pretty much gone. Mm. We had an exhausted workforce. Mm. Um, it was quite depressing because we could see the second wave coming from quite a way off. We knew it was coming and sort of being told by or having it sort of demonstrated to us by um, uh, hires and betters in government that um, that this is not the case, please disbelieve your eyes, was really quite depressing. Um, when, did, when did you know it was coming? Um, we were already talking about it by about October, November. October, definitely early November. We had our suspicions when the um, Eat Out to Help Out was put in place. Um, so yes, we, we anticipated that we were going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And by this time, you had a workforce who had been in the trenches for going on nine months. Um, people who had seen things at a stage in their training, both junior doctors and junior nurses, 
that they really shouldn't have been expected to take on. Um, we had um, a lot of staff who had seen the consequences in terms of people who looked like them. We'd all seen the uh, stories and we'd even had our own colleagues who'd fallen sick and very severely unwell. Um, and we'd had deaths within our own trust. So people were not prepared to jeopardize their own well-being, and quite rightly so, which unlike maybe in the first wave where people were a bit more gung-ho. So the second wave was hard. It really was. So following on from, from that, um, would you say that risk assessments for at-risk frontline staff are adequate? Um, we had to do, I think, firstly, risk assessments, as far as we were concerned, came because there was such a groundswell of protest in terms of the people that we could see were dying from this in all of the key um, kind of professions and key workers. And, and yet nothing seemed to be being done about it. So there was that push from the ground. And yet what we were faced with when it was finally rolled out was um, sort of like a three-part tick box um, paper. Are you this? Are you this? Are you this? No, in that case, off you go. You should be fine. Um, which might have flown in more normal times, but at this time, I think people were actually forced into a far more militant position. It, it, it felt as if rather than being supported in terms of a risk assessment, you were being required to justify yourself. I don't know of anybody within the NHS, the clinical staff, that went in there without any kind of sense of service towards patients. So for, to put somebody in a position where they're having to justify themselves, you may actually be encouraging people to take risks that they should not be doing, which is the exact opposite philosophy to a risk assessment. So um, what, what impact, short-term or long-term, has there been on frontline staff, including uh, those from BAME backgrounds? Um, I think I'll take BAME first. Um, I think one thing leads to the other. Mm -hmm. Having seen the disproportionate um, numbers of deaths and um, poor outcomes, I think that made a lot of BAME staff very wary. Um, within the first wave, soon after we started getting some of these statistics back, we did have episodes of, it was mostly, to be fair, it was mostly um, sort of locum staff of locum nurses um, showing up, being told, oh, you're going to be on a COVID ward. Um, they'll take one look at the inadequate PPE and say, no, and they'd walk off the job. So, uh, so you had that. Um, it made people a lot more militant about um, risk assessment. So because you'd already had this loss of trust, we actually had people who 
would push quite aggressively for conditions that might not necessarily have qualified. But even then, you'd understand where they were coming from. And I think that those experiences at the very beginning may well have led to a lot of the mistrust that is now being labeled um, vaccine hesitancy. Once you've lost trust in the system, it persists. Um, in terms of, in a wider aspect, in terms of staff, um, as I alluded to earlier on, we've had a lot of uh, junior staff on, throughout who have seen things that I don't think they should ever have, one, had to see, or two, had to deal with and feel as if they were personally responsible for. And I know that that's led to a lot of people reassessing whether they wish to stay in the NHS. Can you give any specific um, examples without being too specific? Well, I, I know definitely of at least two or three nurses who've said, um, as soon as this is done, they're out. Um, of course, we're entering into a time of um, economic um, uncertainty. Uh, so it, it, it is very much that people may want to hold on purely uh, because of finances, but in terms of enthusiasm for the job, the, the feeling uh, the, that it's a profession that you want to remain in, no, that has been lost in a lot of people, and it wasn't helped by um, the sort of final insult, uh, which was the, um, the, the, the non-existent um, pay for uh, for health workers, especially the most junior. Um, last question from me, because I'm sure there'll be some for the panel. Um, how could frontline staff be better supported in their work um, and better protected now uh, in future epidemics, in future pandemics? It's a bit like um, we are required to do drills for major incidents. Um, so that when it happens, it's not a shock. Um, it's an absolute shame that from a national perspective, that hadn't occurred. Um, we weren't prepared. We didn't have the PPE, we didn't have the protocols, we didn't have the kind of rapid response systems. We didn't have the infrastructure. Um, I think that the NHS in a large way has been starved of funds for, as, as far as I'm concerned, the last about 12 years. Um, and that's just um, in terms of normal functioning. Within a pandemic, we cannot afford to have those kind of deficiencies in place. We are understaffed. And that's, again, within normal uh, periods. You cannot afford to have that within pandemics. Um, just to give you an example of what I mean by the problems with infrastructure, um, we have a, within a, a busy ED where I work, we have our staff have to resort to changing either in the toilets or actually within the small kitchenettes that we have. How can you honestly expect to have adequate social distancing and prevention of cross contamination if those are the facilities that you? are happy for your staff to remain in. So it's actually, there's a lot of investment that needs to go in 
in both staffing, infrastructure and finance. Thank you. Um, those are all the questions I'm afraid I've got time for. Dr. Chidi Edumofo, I'm going to hand you back to Michael Mansfield. Thank you. Yes, oh gosh, well, I have got a couple, I'm afraid. Um, the first, I, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. And, and it's leading on from Kirsty Burton. It's sort of linked to moral injury. And I, I, you know, not being a doctor, but trying to get on the front line as to what the impact that it's had. You've had 12 years, in your view, of uh, being badly resourced, under-resourced. You've now got an exhausted workforce. And you've got a level of acute patients. There's the COVID acute patients. But then there's everybody else. Now, the thing that has occurred to me from time to time is somebody's having to triage who's going to be revived. In other words, who is making the choice between patients? Is it just a lack of resources and it's on the spot? Or how is this done? And what is the effect on staff? I put staff in the general sense, who are having to make these enormous decisions which are life-threatening. That's the first, first question. Second one, slightly more practical. I mean... In a very short space of time, we had mushrooming Nightingale hospitals everywhere. Well, in the major conurbations, anyway. And I, I see you're shaking your head already. Well, so was I. But, I mean, I'd be interested to know whether they are to be factored in or to be factored out, because you just haven't got the people to, 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 as it were, man or woman the hospitals. Anyway, two questions, a bit unrelated, but I wonder if you could give some answers, please. Okay, so I think um, if I can address the Nightingale hospitals first, because I think that's one that I can put to bed quite quickly. Um, it's, it's just disappointing that um, people that should have known better um, at higher levels did not consult at um, the frontline front staff or people at the coal face because they would have very swiftly been informed that a hospital is not just a building and it's not just ventilators. You could fill my um, resource department with ventilators, but because I don't day-to-day -day, um, maintain ventilators and I am not an ITU consultant, nor am I an ITU nurse, um, your ventilator is nearly as good as useless if you don't have sufficient staff. We were staffed to the levels that we were ready for at the time that the initial wave came through. You cannot, even though we managed to triple the numbers of our ITU beds, that actually just meant that we were already spreading our ITU staff thinly. Creating the Nightingale Hospitals was, in my, uh, in my opinion, at least the way that in which they were resourced, was a waste of time. They should never have been put together for acute cases. They should have been used for maybe recovering cases so that you were not trying to take away valuable and scarce um, intensive care staff away from the hospitals where they're already required. Um, 
going back to the first part of the question, making those kind of decisions. Well, the truth of the matter is that those decisions only became germane when you ran out of resources. So if up until the time that you could keep admitting people onto ITU, you did within sort of, um, of course, within parameters. And to be fair, these were parameters that previously would exist. So if you had patients where the, there was a high likelihood of the patient not surviving with a, a large number of comorbidities, all of the things were pointing against a successful outcome in terms of an attempt towards resuscitation, which is the same criteria you would use during your normal times, then you would apply those. Where it became a case of sort of real moral hazard was when we totally ran out of resources. And yet you had patients who you knew within ordinary times, if we'd had the resources or places to send them, the odds were that they would survive. So you were now having patients who were going to, rather than going to ITU, were going to HDU. Rather than going to HDU, were going to um, wards where they had upped the intensity of the staffing. And as I previously said, ITU had tripled its um, resources, but that's, if you think about it, um, it wasn't the same level of intensity as you would have had before the pandemic, because where they were previously staffed, maybe one to one or two to one, they were suddenly having to spread themselves over a greater number of patients. Yes, thank you. There are some supplementaries, but I won't uh, trouble you with them at the moment. And any other questions from the panel? Yes, uh, there are two at least. Uh, I'm not sure whether you're doing your screen or asking. Can I, while you're uh, doing that, Professor, yes, please. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Edimofo. Thank you for your, your 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 testimony, which was a very graphic account of of what happened on the front line. Yeah. I my, my comment is that we as doctors know about our duty of care to our patients. But in your opinion, who has a duty of care towards frontline staff? Um. Our employers. So uh, ultimately, the Department of Health, um, in a lot of ways, are regulatory bodies, I believe. Um, I, I, it's if you are prepared to um, rule on our professional behavior, you should also be there when our professional behavior or the things that we do are constrained by the um, by factors outside of our control. And to be fair, um, there was a there was sufficient outcry that I believe, uh, at least on my side uh, of the of the fence, the GMC did um, come up with some updated uh, types of guidance for, for in terms of um, actions taken during a pandemic. So, so we're, we're here to, to try and learn from what has happened and try and ensure that the country's better prepared should there be a future such event. 
But going back to my question about duty of care, what needs to happen now to ensure that frontline staff are looked after? We heard a very graphic account earlier on this evening from a frontline nurse who said that she felt she had no one she could turn to. How can we do things better in the future? I think there needs to be a robust and independent way of feeding back um, or reporting when we feel that uh, we are being constrained from being able to carry out our duties secondary to things that are out with of our control. Um, I think that was very much lacking during this pandemic. Um, so to such a degree that people um, were forced to anonymously turn to the, um, to the media, to the press, in order to um, highlight things that were occurring. Um, it, I think something like that being built in, almost like a professional, I, I know that we have a, um, a duty of candor with regards to uh, patients. Uh, something similar to that, um, from a professional standpoint, um, a duty of candor that's required with regards to our own working conditions and our professionalism, I think would be at least a useful step. Thank you very much. Dr. Davis, please, I think has got a question. Thank you. And thank you for that. That was very interesting from the front line. Um, I heard from you and I've heard from other people that there was a real fear that that a lot of frontline staff were being asked to do things that they felt was belong beyond their competency, but they didn't have any any choice but to do it because of the situation. Do you, do you think that that is true? Do you think people felt supported in acting beyond their competency? And in the, in view of cases we've had in the past, do you think the GMC has done enough to reassure people that if they did find themselves doing things, particularly juniors, you're describing them finding themselves in terrible situations, that, 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 that we will look after them? Um, do I think the GMC has done enough? Not really. Leave, um, leave that one till last. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to answer. Um, on a personal level, I think we definitely, we were very cognizant of the risk of people being asked to carry out duties that were beyond their immediate competencies, which is why we um, stationed a lot of staff, especially staff who were coming from outside. Um, we put them in non-critical areas so that we can concentrate our staff within the critical areas. Um, and we, we essentially doubled down on the shift for our seniors. So in a lot of ways, I think almost cannibalizing our, senior, um, uh, our seniors in order to ensure that there was sufficient support for others. Um, the effect that that may well have had uh, on a lot of my uh, colleagues within the senior ranks is yet to be seen, I suspect. Um, how that played out in other institutions, I really couldn't say, and I don't know, is the honest truth. 
um, but I am worried about the, the the effects that it may well have on any that didn't feel that they were um, supported. I know that there was a very strong push um, coming up to the tail end of the first wave and definitely through the second wave for things in terms of mental well-being and support for staff going through. And I really hope that that is something that is continued as opposed to being um, just a bit of a bright spark idea in the middle of a pandemic. Um, then coming to the last part with regards to um, support from regulatory organizations such as the GMC. Um, no, I think I, I person, my personal take was that they wanted to have their cake and eat it, which was, yes, we know that some of you will feel that you've been um, asked to do more than is your competency. We will remind you that you're supposed to work within your competencies, but yes, we know that it's very difficult. Um, try not to do anything naughty, uh, I think was my <laughs> takeaway. Well, on that naughty note, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, if I may, just bring proceedings tonight to an end. But of course, I'm going to ask Sue Richards. And may I thank you very much, Doctor, for stepping in tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Back to Richards, please. Thank you very much. Um, what an amazing set of witnesses. That was so powerful. Um, thank you very much, all of you, on behalf of um, Keep Our NHS Public. Thanks to the panel. Thanks to Lorna. And thank to you for, for coming tonight. Can I remind you that the next session is on the 5th of May and the theme is inequalities and discrimination. So please come to that one too. And if you can, make a contribution to the crowdfunder, which you'll find linked on the website. So thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Good night.